strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to tell you the tale of the Red Ghost of the American Southwest. This episode is brought to you from a listener suggestion. Ooh. So thank you, Tess. Thank uh, you, she emailed, Tess. She emailed us a while ago and brought this up and I uh, had it on the list. And today I was like, you know what? What is what is this Red Ghost all about? I have no idea. And it's a, it's a pretty, pretty interesting topic. And it goes really, it goes deep and it goes a little wild into some different areas that are kind of unexpected. Wow. Thank you, Tess. Look uh, forward to hearing it. <laughs> all right. So one morning in the spring of 1883, two women were alone with their children in a small adobe house in Eagle Creek, which is in the southeastern corner of the Arizona Territory. The men of the family had gone out early to determine how many of their sheep had been slaughtered or driven off by a recent attack by Geronimo and his Apaches. Being left alone at such a time meant certain danger for women, since Geronimo might to return at any point in time. But these dangers were just every day for these women, mm -hmm. so it wasn't a special day. At some point during the morning, one of the women left the house to go and fetch the water. A few minutes later, after she had left, the dog began to bark which caused the other woman to run to the window and see what all the fuss was about. All she was ever able to report was that she saw what she saw was red, enormous, and ridden by the devil. She heard screams, but was too terrified to think of doing anything, in, and instead she barricaded herself in the house and spent the day in hysterical prayer. Enormous. How big was this thing? When the men returned that night and heard her story, they lit torches and went to investigate near the spring. There, they found the body of the second woman near the water, trampled almost flat. In the mud were prints of hoofs, cloven, and twice the size of a horse. Whoa. That's how big it was. Okay. Oh, yeah. Just a little perspective. So twice the size of a horse, so pretty fucking big. Yeah. So clinging to some of the willows that were near that stream were some long red hairs. The coroner from Solomonsville, who held an inquest, was highly suspicious of this story. I mean, but of course he didn't believe the story. No. Would you believe that story? I don't know. Well, I mean— <laughs> After I've seen the woman, it's either that or a large tractor rolled, like rolled over her. But then where the red right. hairs come from? Well, this is 1883, so no tractor. Oh. Or, I mean, maybe like a pole sort a of. A pole wagon kind of a thing? Right. But, you know, she's down by the Their spring version, and yeah. like a thicket of trees getting water. Oh, it's very difficult to move right. something of a large thing through exactly. trees and yeah, right. over rocks and all that. So this guy's like. So, I mean. I mean, he's like not buying the story whatsoever. But, except for the horribly battered state of the body and the remarkable hoof prints, he would have been convinced that the woman had been murdered, possibly by members of the family. I mean, typically, murder victims are yeah. killed by people that you know. In the end, however, he permitted the jury to return a verdict of death in some manner unknown. And it was reported in the Mojave County Minor, which was the newspaper at the time, that her death was not considered a murder, but rather this, like, mysterious accident. I'd rather it be declared a murder. At least it's something well, to be declared. Right. right now, it's just out in the open, like, no idea. Yeah. I'd rather have a significant reason. This is why we call it a day, but. But it's a mystery. A mystery of a giant red thing. <laughs> With cloven hooves. Um, it's like the Jersey Devil. Yes. Yeah. Similar stories. So a few days later, two prospectors who were washing for gold at Chase's Creek, which is a tributary of the Rio San Francisco River, 
which is several miles northeast of where the first attack was at Eagle Creek. Okay. So these two dudes were awakened in the middle of the night as their tent came smashing down around their heads. They heard, as they told it, a loud scream and the sound of pounding hooves and saw what seemed to them an impossibly tall horse crash off into the brush. When they told their tale at the mining crap. <laughs> down at the mining crap? 19 pages. Just so it's where you can mine and crap at the same time. I mean, I'm sure they crapped in the mines. Oh, absolutely. Zero. Zero fucks. And who has were time given. to run up the zero fucks were given by these dudes? I'm sure there was a bucket. When they told their tale at the mining camp, several miners returned to the scene with them. I'm sorry, did you say 19 pages? Mm-hmm. It's big font. You're in for it. This mm-hmm. is just what we're doing. Okay. I'm here for the ride. When they told their tale at the mining camp, several miners returned to the scene with them. Along the bed of the creek, they found the prints of huge hoofs, and through the brush leading off, they found a trail that had been broken by an obviously large animal. A few long red hairs clung to the brush. Although half a dozen miners corroborated these discoveries, which clearly coincided in details with the occurrence at the sheep ranch, the general reaction was skepticism. And especially since at this time, the telling of tall tales around the campfire was pretty much the most popular form of entertainment. And those storytellers soon seized on the tale of the red ghost, as they dubbed this mysterious animal, and embroidered on meager accounts of these two appearances. One person claimed that he had chased the beast and that it had eluded him by vanishing into thin air. Another reported that he had watched it kill and devour a grizzly. About a month later, after the death of the ranch woman, however, the red ghost rematerialized in a surprising form. The event took place near the Salt River, about 80 miles north of Eagle Creek. A rancher named Cyrus Hamblin, out hunting for stray cattle, climbed a bare ridge to look around. Across the ravine below was a tableland covered in dense shrubbery. He could barely distinguish a huge reddish animal moving through the brush. Hamblin later admitted that despite the deep ravine separating him and this apparition, the hair rose a bit on the back of his neck. But he stayed to get a better look and the animal gradually worked its way out into a fairly open space. Hamblin was able to relax at that point. Although the distance was nearly a quarter of a mile, he recognized the beast beyond any possibility of a doubt. It was a camel. (laughs) They do have giant hooves. I guess you can say that's red. (laughs) I mean, it's more like a blonde in my... (laughs) Strawberry blonde. All right. Right? It's like ginger. I think you need to just take a moment and diddly-doo, diddly-doo, diddly-doo in your time machine to what you think a person in 1880s Arizona how knows about a fucking there? camel. I mean, I, yeah, I get that. Like, how how did a camel even show up to begin with? But Well, I'm going to tell you. But also, yeah, but also how did the guy recognize it? He's like, oh, I'm going to tell you. Camel. Okay. I'm going to tell you everything. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. 
We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. <laughs> Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. To most Americans, and even to most Arizonians, the discovery of a camel wandering in the wilderness would have been quite as startling as most of the invented stories about the red ghost. It just so happened that Hamblin had spent several years in the desert region of the southwestern part of the territory near the California border. He had never heard of camels in the high salt country, but he knew that in the desert they were, if not plentiful, plentiful by no means uncommon. So Hamblin did remark about one specific thing. Like he saw the hump on the back and he knew very clearly that it was a camel. He had seen them before, so he knew what it was. But he also remarked that the top had an, he had an oddly shapen package attached to him. At a distance, he was unable to tell exactly what it was, but he reported that it looked like a dead body was attached to him. So people clearly thought this was an insane story, but Hamlin's reputation was so solid that his story and his story was told with such sincerity that it was widely accepted. I think I think I have an idea. Keep it to yourself. Damn it. It brought back to life a nearly forgotten bit of the West's history and gave the more imaginative of the territory's citizens something they could really sink their teeth into. Soon, the Red Ghost, as the settlers called it, was one of America's most infamous inhabitants. The one item in Hamblin's account that caused listeners to pause was the matter of the burden upon the beast's back. Those who didn't believe him were convinced that it was just merely the camel's hump. But a few weeks after Hamblin's experience, the Red Ghost turned up again near the valley of the Verde River, about 60 miles west of Hamblin's ranch. And at that point, the scoffing ceased. This time, a party of five prospectors sighted the animal feeding on a mesa, and they managed to get within what was considered a shooting distance, and they banged away. They either missed completely or merely grazed the animal, and it rapidly loped out of range. As it departed, something fell from its back. The prospectors investigated and found a human skull with a few shreds of flesh and hair still clinging to it. Red hair? Red hair? Because that's what in my mind. Red hair? <clears throat> That's what I was thinking in my head. I was like, that camel's blonde. <laughs> they never say what color the hair is on <laughs> the camel's there. blonde. Come on. They never say. Okay. This gruesome discovery firmly established the Red Ghost as a living legend. Its career in that role was to last nearly 10 years, since the only contemporary account seems to come from that newspaper, mm -hmm. the Mojave County Miner. And since newspaper in those days were no by no means slaves to fact... <laughs> It may be that some of the details were slightly embellished. A little bit. The ghost career made a fitting conclusion to the pathetic history of the U.S. Army's first and only Camel Corps. Camel Corps. That history had begun in March of 1855, when President Franklin Pierce's Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, persuaded Congress to appropriate $30,000 for the purchase of camels to be used by the Army in exploring the Southwest. Like most military innovations, this one had been proposed many years earlier. One of the explorers of the West, Major George H. Crosman, had formally recommended in 1836 that since the chief desert problem was lack of water, and since camels could go longer without water than horses or mules, that the Army should experiment with use of camels. Mm -hmm. 
Made sense. (laughs) And it only took the suggestion 19 years to work its way through the proper channels. The government, everyone. Yay! (laughs) Uh, When Davis finally got the money for the project, he sent Major Henry C. Wayne and Lieutenant David D. Porter to the Eastern Mediterranean in a Navy store ship to buy the first camels. As an experienced horse trader, Wayne took plenty of time investigating camel lore and studying the offerings in the camel markets of Alexandria and Smyrna. It was time well spent. Alexandria. All but one of the 33 animals that he purchased would survive the very tough three-month voyage to Indianola, Texas. I was just thinking that. Yeah. I was like, to ship those poor camels. And he got them here. He did the right thing. It's like every time I go to a new exhibit at the zoo, and I'm like, oh, the giraffes. How the hell did they get the giraffes? (laughs) I mean, the neck alone. It's just a hazard. Drop them from the sky? What's going on? Operation Dumbo Drop? Yeah, exactly. How are they going to do camels in the 1800s? Yeah. I mean, the answer to everything in the 1800s, on a boat. boat. So... Wayne and Porter also hired six Arabic men and a Turkish man to train American troops how to tend, ride, and care for the camels. But their remarkably bad judgment in these hirings foreshadowed the ultimate fate of the experiment. Apparently, they assumed that since camels abounded in that area, that every person who lived there must be a camel expert. (laughs) The Arabic gentlemen were about as familiar with camels as an average city boy is with horses. The Turkish veterinarian's treatment for a sick camel no matter what the ailment was, consisted of tickling the animal's nose with the tail of a chameleon. <laughs> the tail of a chameleon? The guy walked around with a chameleon in his hands? Like nonstop? I guess, man. Oh, he's sick. Wait one second. I'm going to go get my chameleon. He's got the shits? Tickle his nose <laughs> with this chameleon. Let me go grab the chameleon. Did the chameleon change colors to be the color of a camel's nose? That's the real question. Oh, just a tip. Indeed, Robin. Indeed. <laughs> I guess the tip's the only thing doing the tickling, so. Oh, tickle, tickle. And once we start talking about just the tip people, it's time to open another bottle of wine. There we go. In the course of the long voyage, Wayne learned so much about camels and became so thoroughly convinced that they were potentially of great value to the army that he refused to allow such mistakes to discourage him. After landing in Texas on May 14, 1856, he sent Porter back to the Near East for another load, and he drove his charges to the army's Camp Verde, 60 miles northwest of San Antonio. Along the way, he encountered an unanticipated difficulty. Nearly every horse and mule they met along the way bolted in terror at the sight of the beasts in their care. Yes. Since the horse... (laughs) They're they're freaky looking. They're scary. Since the horsemen and teamsters were enraged by this and placed all the blame on the camels, it was clear to Wayne by the time he had reached Camp Verde that his first task was to make converts to his point of view about the animals. He set up a neat demonstration to that end assembling several of the already hostile muleteers assigned to the experiment. He let out one of his best camels, commanded it to kneel, and loaded it with two big bales of hay, either of which would have been about as much as a mule could carry. Wayne then stepped back and surveyed the load, as if he was afraid he might have gone too far. The onlookers muttered derisively that no animal could lift such a weight. Wayne let them convince themselves that he had made a mistake then proceeded to add two more bales to the load. The muleteers were incredulous, and when the camel got up and strolled off at Wayne's command, they cheered. It was the sole recorded occasion on which a muleskinner expressed approval of a camel. Whoa. After several months of training with the camels, Beale was assigned to survey a route from Fort Defiance, New Mexico, to the eastern frontier of California, across the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona. 
For the expedition, he chose 25 of the best camels from Wayne's herd, and from the additional 44 brought in on the second trip by Porter. By the time he had completed the survey, what is now approximately the route of of the western half of the famous highway, US-66, he was convinced that, that the camel was the solution to the Southwest transportation problem. His admiration from the cam- for the camels only increased as he worked with them more. He had become so fond of camels that he even learned a bit of Arabic on the theory that they might be homesick for the language. One big white camel, which stood eight feet high at the hump and which he called Saeed, was his favorite mount, and he gave it more care than most frontiersmen gave their horses. He had established that in nearly any kind of terrain to be found in the Southwest, three camels could carry on their backs as much as six mules could pull in a wagon and could cover the ground nearly twice as fast. Holy shit. Camels are fucking rad. I love them. So, furthermore, when the expedition forded the Colorado River from Arizona to California, all the camels swam with ease, but a dozen horses and mules were swept away by the current and drowned. Oh. I know. Sad face. Oh, no. Not my homies. I I have no horses or mules. (laughs) (laughs) I live in, I live outside New York City. Um, And as the final test, at the end of the journey, Beale took a dozen camels north to Los Angeles into the Sierra Nevada and found them readily adaptable to both high altitudes and to cold weather. All of this finally convinced the War Department. And in December 1858, the Secretary of War formally declared the experiment a success and recommended to Congress the importation of a thousand more camels. By then, though, Congress got a little too busy with the preliminary portion of the Civil War to give the matter much consideration at all. This was fortunate for the animals that might have been brought over. Yeah, absolutely. Since the camels already on hand were finding themselves strangers among men and whose strangeness justified utter barbarity. Major Wayne and Lieutenant Spiel and Porter seemed to have been nearly the only Americans who understood and valued the animals. And when war neared, all three were transferred to duty in the eastern part of the country. They left behind only three others who had any appreciation for camels' potential usefulness. These were three remarkable men that they had brought with them from the Near East uh, during that second camel-buying expedition. All of them apparently knew at least a little bit about camels when they were hired and were able to learn more and eventually became the Army's most expert camel handlers. They had little success, though, because to nearly every cowhand and mule skinner who came in contact with them, camels were incomprehensible abominations, and the feeling was mutual. They are not abominations. Certainly not. Camels are among— Adorable. Those faces. (laughs) Camels are among the most thoroughly domesticated animals, but they take knowing. To their North African and Asiatic owners, they are of such value that they are treated with care and respect. Unlike the horses and mules and cattle to whom the Southwest cowhands were accustomed, they have a highly effective means of retaliating when they feel that they are not receiving fair treatment. Oh, they spit. The legend of the old-time cowboy's affection for his horse in Hollywood movies is nothing but that, an invention of Hollywood. Owen Wister included in a first draft of one of his stories an incident in which an enraged cowhand gouged the eyes out of a horse. He was later begged by Theodore Roosevelt to delete the scene, not because it was unrealistic, but because they felt that it would encourage cruelty to animals. Even sane riders often brutalized their mounts unmercifully. And mule skinners were called so for good reason. They were quite capable of removing bits of animals' hides with weighted whips that they used. What the? F- hold on. What? <laughs> 
Why was why did they gouge the eyes out of the horse? He was pissed off. The point really is to just understand that the way the animals are treated in westerns is not really the case. No. They're used um, for transportation. And when, only that. When an animal did not obey, they were sick. They were slow. Um, they were left behind. They were brutalized. Or, had their eyes gouged out. Or killed and used right. for parts. But when anyone attempted to treat a camel that way, he got back as good as he gave. For instance, one of the army militeers was practicing loading a camel and piled on too much to suit the beast. It groaned and complained in the usual camel fashion. And just simply refused to rise. The muleteer kicked it in the belly. The camel turned its head and spat full in the face a huge and foul-smelling wad of cud. Wild with rage, the muleteer grabbed a club and swung it at the animal's head. The camel dodged easily, emitting a shrill, hair-raising raising scream, and raked the man's arm uh, down to the bone with its giant tusk-like incisors. Way to go, camel. Also... What was the term you said? The spat? The, the good? What was it? Good. 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 That encounter was the beginning of an unremitting war on the camels by the army's mule skinners. Nothing could have been better designed to enrage such men as a camel's habit of spitting copiously and accurately at anyone <laughs> rousing their resentment. It's very talented. It is a special talent that they have. <sighs> this means they're proud of it. <laughs> this means of reprisal, together with the animal's way of moaning and groaning at being loaded, uh, and their seemingly haughty, disdainful expression, made many of those employed to handle them hate them to the point of obsession. Once a teamster became so enraged at an animal when it succeeded in ridding itself of one of the cons- uh, of what it considered to be the overload. The man grabbed the beast's halter and attempted to beat it into submission, as he would have beaten a mule. Instead of submitting, the camel went berserk and trampled him to death before his friends could shoot it. Many camels would endure months of mistreatment before their eventual deaths. Some of the mistreatment by handlers could have been more knowledge deficit rather than true abuse, though. To the camel handlers, the legend that the animals store large quantities of water in their humps was a matter of unquestioned fact, and it meant that so long as the humps seemed intact, that the camels needed no watering. And, in fact, many of the animals died of thirst. Yeah. Camels still need water, and a mm-hmm. lot of it. They can just go longer than other animals, but it is still a necessity for living. Besides hating the camels for their looks and their lack of promer docility under harsh treatment, the cavalrymen despised them as foreign. This is ironic because camels were American for millions of years. Before any member of a human family showed up in this hemisphere, the whole camel family, like the horse family, evolved here and spread eastern, spread to the eastern hemisphere via the well-traveled land bridge from Alaska to Siberia a mere million years ago. Oh, that's awesome. You know what's uh, related to a camel? A llama. Oh, I knew that. While some camels were imported for other endeavors, all uses of camels in the American West eventually failed, and many would perish. Some would go to zoos, but many were left to fend for themselves after their escapes. So eventually, they just sort of opened the fences, and they were like, I can't deal with this fucking camel anymore, and they would just let them wander off. But since they were a product of several thousand years of domestication— being left to fend for themselves in the desert was a hard fate, but it was far better than what happened to those that occasionally got recaptured. Every now and then, a group of prospectors or cowhands would run across a camel. In most cases, they simply used it for target practice. 
Sometimes an enterprising freighter would make an abortive effort to put a few of the beasts back to work. But inevitably, some of the animals fell into the hands of sadists who found more imaginative uses for them. Oh, no. This was the apparent fate of the one which became known as the Red Ghost. In the early days of the ghost's notoriety, it was generally believed that the corpse that uh, was on its back was that of a traveler who had tied himself there and grew weak from thirst, hoping that the camel would eventually take him to water. But when it ultimately became possible to examine the animal, it was found that the rawhide strips which had held the burden in place, could not have been tied that way by the man who was on the horse. The only question really is whether the man was tied onto the horse for revenge or merely as an ugly piece of humor by someone who had a camel and a corpse and no use for either. But whether the man was alive or dead, it is clear that whoever tied him to the camel was a white man. The Apaches and other Native Americans in the area had many practices that seemed to us cruel, such as capturing infants, but they would never have considered wasting a supply of meat such as a camel. Absolutely not, yeah. Whoever did the deed succeeded in making the camel suffer, but like most members of its species, it refused to suffer in silent resignation. Although it killed only once, it attacked human beings nearly every time it was encountered during the first months of its agony. One of the few occasions on which it fled instead of attacking was when it was fired upon by the party of prospectors. The last known occasion of a violent encounter between the red camel and a man occurred nearly a year after the camel had trampled the woman to death at Eagle Creek. One evening, just at dusk, a cowhand employed on a ranch east of Phoenix happened to ride past a branding corral uh, used at roundup time. That time was still a good ways off, and the corral should have been empty, but it wasn't. The cowhand rode up to the corral's open gate to investigate the odd animal that was browsing inside. It happened that the man had his lariat out, so when the animal in the corral caught sight of him and came charging out, he automatically lassoed it. Not until he had the rope around his neck did he realize that his quarry was a camel. There was no time for regrets. His horse, either extremely well-trained or simply had no chance to bolt. Instead, it reared up on its hind legs and pirouetted as it had been taught to do in avoiding a roped steer. But the camel did not pass harmlessly, as a bovine may have. Instead, it crashed head-on into the off-balance horse, and both mount and rider went down together. With scarcely a break in stride, the camel passed over them and on into the night. But even in the moment of terror, the cowhand noticed that the camel still bore on its back the remnant of the burden, which had once been a man. That was not the camel's last attack, but it was the last report of anyone noticing the grizzly pack on its back. In all likelihood, it was able to rid itself of its remainder soon after this. As the years passed, it faded from terrifying reality to a story meant to frighten children. If that had been the end of the matter, it probably would have been forgotten by history. But almost 10 years later, after being noticed, the Red Ghost made a final appearance. It was reported in the Mojave County Minor. This paper had this all, all the stories. They are on the Red Ghost story. It was reported that a man named Mizu Hastings woke up one morning and saw through his window, saw through the window of his cabin, a big red camel banqueting on his turnip patch. Mizu decided to shoot the camel. Oh no. And he his aim was true and he killed the camel. When he went outside to examine the beast, he found that it was all scarred up and had evidently had a very hard time. Oh. He was covered with a perfect network of knotted rawhide strips. They had been on him so long that some of the strands had cut their way into his flesh. That was also nearly the end of the camel in the American Southwest, but not quite. 
One historian of the Southwest will assure you that the last authentic sighting of a camel was reported by a crew surveying the international boundary between Arizona and Mexico in 1901. And some other sightings um, in Wickensburg, Arizona in 1913. And another about 25 miles west of Palm Springs in 1929. Mm. And in 1941, there was a report of one near the Salton Sea. In 1957, a part-time prospector, part-time guide, and all-around desert rat, who although he himself had never seen one, was sure that camels still raged deep in the burnt hills of Sonora and Baja, California. These rumors are like ghosts of the red ghost, faint but lingering reminders of the kind of horror members of our species alone can perpetrate on the remarkable powers of endurance of other forms of life. So question. Yes, Robin. Do you think that the reason why they refer to that camel as the red ghost was because it was bound in rawhide and it cut its flesh. So its fur was dyed from the blood. That I think that's possible. I think that... I mean, that's like my immediate thought was like, oh, it punctured the skin, which means that poor thing has been bleeding, which means you might think about maybe the time of day that they're seeing it, um, the the quality of the hair. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible that it was covered in the blood of the camel. I think it's possible it was covered in the the blood of the man. I think that it's possible that it just had a ginger like hue Mm. uh, that we would call red hair. It's a terribly sad story. Uh, thank you, Tess, because mm-hmm. I had zero idea about this story. I know. I, I remembered a bit about the Camel Corps, but I certainly didn't know the extent to which they worked so hard to create this. And it probably would have been very successful had it not been for just the outright prejudices of the people at the time. Just not liking them because they're foreign and not liking because they didn't submit in the same way that other mm. domesticated animals in America do. It was – it's sad. But it's an awesome piece of history, and I hope you guys all learned a lot from it. Yeah, I do. Um, and, yeah, just like I say all the time, just if you have a story that you want us to look into that you're interested in, you can email us. You can direct message us on our Instagram. We're always down to learn more. So that is the story of the Red Ghost of the American Southwest, just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.